Hello, this is the Organic BC Podcast, and I'm Jordan Marr, an organic corn grower from the Okanagan Valley and the show's current host. What you're about to listen to is a re-release of an episode originally produced for the 2022 BC Organic Conference. I hope you enjoy it. In this episode, we've got guest interviewer Emma Holmes. She's our sector's industry specialist at the BC Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Fisheries, and she interviews Drew Yates, a pest and soil specialist with ES Crop Consult, based in the Lower Mainland. This is part one of two. Here, Emma and Drew discuss Drew's experience of the impacts of climate change on pest cycles, mass insect trapping techniques, and the use of robot beets to improve your crop handling. That's about it. I'll let Emma take it away, and I will talk to you in a bit. Hey. This is Emma Holmes, Organic Specialist with the BC Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Fisheries. Thank you so much to Organic BC for inviting me to be a guest host. I am thrilled to be interviewing Drew Yates, Integrated Pest Management Specialist with ES Crop Consult. Before I get to that, however, I want to talk about this past year. It has been a lot. A pandemic, record heat wave, wildfires, and most recently, record flooding. The stories of farmer resilience have been so inspiring. I have spoken with so many producers directly impacted and the strength, adaptability, skill, and just sheer determination in the face of these disasters is truly incredible. But feeling overwhelmed is understandable and normal. These climate disasters are having a devastating impact on our lives and well-being, and I want you to know that help and resources are available for anyone who feels overwhelmed or who wants to talk about their experiences this past year. You can visit gov.bc.ca slash agriservicebc or call 310-6789 for more details. There is emergency aid available. Federal and provincial governments are preparing an emergency aid program for farmers affected by flooding from November's rains. I am recording this episode in mid-December, but I anticipate that when it airs, the program will be announced and available. For farmers impacted by the drought and wildfires, there is the 2021 Wildfire and Drought Agri-Recovery Initiative. Unfortunately, I'm hearing from quite a few producers that they think they aren't eligible when they are in fact eligible. The forms are confusing and it makes it seem that only those impacted by wildfires but not drought are eligible. If you have animals and due to drought or wildfire, you had to purchase extra feed or sell some of your animals because you couldn't feed them all, you are likely eligible. Many folks who were impacted by the drought and as a result had lower yields see the form only mention wildfire and then don't apply, but this is a typo on the form. If you have any questions about agri-recovery and your eligibility, the application program, please don't hesitate to reach out to me at emma.homes, H-O-L-M-E-S, at gov.bc.ca, or you can call my cell phone, 250-241-1337. Okay, back to the interview. It is such a treat to interview Drew Yates. She has been working with ES Crop Consult for eight years as an integrated pest management supervisor and soil specialist. Her focus is on integrated pest management for organic and conventional field vegetables and blueberries in the Fraser Valley. And she is also responsible for ES Crop Consult client service and research on soils and nutrient management. I had the unique pleasure of doing both my undergraduate degree in sustainable agriculture and my master's degree in soil science with Drew during our time at UBC. Our friendship blossomed in Soils 200 and has been growing strong ever since. 
On top of being an all-around lovely person, I always appreciate the insights Drew gains through her role of being an on-farm extension agent and visiting so many farms and conducting research trials. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Well, um, so hi, Drew. Hey, Emma. I'm really excited to be talking with you today. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to be here. So you have a pretty unique perspective. Um, You spend a lot of your working hours on farms and you're regularly visiting a wide variety of farms. Um, So this gives you an opportunity to see how things are going um, throughout the season on a lot of farms. How many farms would you say you're regularly visiting in the season? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is where the podcast listening really comes in, is uh, traveling between different field sites through the summer. Um, probably, it depends on the, the types of projects that I happen to be involved in that season, but anywhere from 20 to up to 40 even uh, different farms I would visit in a season would be my estimate. And on these farms, what kind of crops are growing? Um, yeah, lots of different things. So um, probably the the greatest total acreage that I end up visiting is either potatoes, blueberries, or brassica crops. But I do visit mixed veg operations. And so there's sort of a smattering of all sorts of different field vegetables in particular um, that I end up visiting as well. Cool. Uh, So a good variety. Yeah, and it's a mixture of different types of production as well. So um, like some some farms are conventional and some farms are uh, organic certified or maybe they're not certified, but they are using a lot of organic management principles. some of the farms are really large um, and some are, yeah, very small sort of mixed uh, operations. So kind of get a big spectrum of different ways of managing as well, which is interesting uh, for me to see. It's like not always a one size fits all in terms of what's going on in those farms for pest dynamics or even uh, what sort of management options people are interested in utilizing. Mm-hmm. And so, well, this year in particular has been a doozy with the heat dome, <laughs> hellfires, <laughs> flooding. And I'm curious, I mean, you've been with ES for, has it been 10 years? Not quite that long. Yeah, it's, I've been, uh, I just finished my seventh season, seventh uh, season. at ES. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I've been working in agriculture in the lower mainland for about 10 years, I would guess. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm curious if being on these farms, really having that IPM, integrated pest management perspective, um, as mm-hmm. you visit these farms, what are you seeing in terms of effects of a changing climate? Yeah, so gen- in general with climate change, I would say that there's an increase in <laughs> unpredictability and therefore like an increased need for these farm systems to be as resilient as possible um, and in sort of a general sense. In this last 
year, this last season in 2021, um, yeah, I certainly saw different impacts of heat on different crops and those sort of manifested themselves in a variety of ways. So um, for example, in potatoes, we saw this effect uh, in some fields called chaining, where the potato as a result of stress would sort of reduce its growth. Um, and then once it came out of that stress pattern, it would resume growth. So it ended up almost where the potatoes look like like snowmen, where they're sort of constricted at one point in the in the tuber, which is not ideal for, for marketing. Um, in addition to just reduced vigor across the board for a lot of crops, some of the like later planting brassica fields that I was in around that time, if they had just been transplanted in the couple weeks leading up to that big heat dome that we had, there was quite a bit of loss of newly transplanted plants. They just couldn't, their little tiny root systems just couldn't, couldn't handle it. <laughs> um, they were overtaken by that heat in ways that other previous plantings that were a bit more established were fine from, um, essentially. And of course, a big one was were the berry crops, or I guess other other crops that would have been fully fruiting at that time. There's a lot of scalded fruit, and for me, I was seeing that mostly in blueberries, but raspberries and blackberries were hit even harder, I would say, by that that timing of that heat, um, which is pretty pretty devastating. Right when your crop is uh, about to be harvested, to to take a a loss right at that point is is a hard one to swallow. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, oh yeah. And that's not even to mention all of the flooding that's just happened recently. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, which the impacts of that is sort of yet to be seen, uh, as the fields are kind of just coming out from being covered in water. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So lots of questions there and that's, uh, yeah, but I mean, the, the gist of all of that, I would say is that, yeah, there's just like an unpredictability that uh, growers are kind of being required to be prepared for and that their systems have to be prepared for. And that's true for, for diseases and for pests as well. Those things are so, the environment uh, plays such an important role in terms of their population dynamics, when um, they're active, um, how they're able to complete their life cycles, et cetera. So yeah, it's all tied into that for sure. You mentioned yeah, farmers need to be prepared. And you mentioned the word resiliency. Mm. Their systems need to be more resilient than ever before. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have some examples of resiliency or what that word means to you um, in a farm system? I think for me, I'm going to approach this from an integrated pest management lens. Uh, that's my bias. Um, but a big part of IPM uh, in management has to do with um, approaching pest management from many angles and using a diverse toolbox effectively um, to either prevent or address pest issues um, in your operations. And so, yeah, what, what that looks like to me is 
uh, integrating, that's why it's called integrated pest management, but integrating um, pest management into all different aspects of, uh, of your operation. So certain decisions that growers end up making either for market reasons, um, maybe is what people are thinking of primarily for variety selection, for example, when you're selecting varieties, that's also a really important point at which um, you can be making uh, decisions for uh, certain uh, pest resistance as well. Um, and then tying those sorts of thought processes into lots of different decision making that is taking place um, as you're setting up your operation. Um, yeah, it kind of comes in uh, everywhere. Like pest management is a part of so many decisions that end up being made on a farm. And so it sounds like, you know, having as many different uh, varieties um, is is helpful um, at different timings mm -hmm. is helpful, kind of adding uh, some complexity into the system. Absolutely. And that's where, yeah, having having a diversified cropping system, I see that as being um, a really effective way to build resilience into your operation. And that can be a diverse set of, of crops, uh, you know, things that you're going to harvest, but it can also be diversifying the things that are growing, some of which might not be crop plants. So um, yeah, having space for um, pollinator buffers, um, which will attract pollinators um, like bees, um, but will also be an important habitat and food source for a lot of other beneficial insects that will help to manage other pests that you might experience on the cropping areas of your farm. And that's a tough one though. Like I know the price of land is so high and so justifying taking any square footage out of uh, direct production can be, can certainly be challenging. And I, yeah, I certainly hear that from growers often, but I, I think that that is one way of building resilience and redundancy and yeah, making it easier for those systems to withstand, uh, the unpredictable things that, that climate change brings. Do you ever see something like in blueberries, for instance, them using the spaces around the bushes, like between the rows, for pollinator habitat? Or is that, does that not make sense? It just makes sense to mow it, keep it as clean as possible. Um, just thinking because space is so valuable. Do you see ever like creative ways in which farmers are using space to also um, create habitat? Yeah, the way that I see it done in ways that seem to work really well for growers is uh, kind of having living mulch in a way uh, between rows. So planting aisles with something. Um, and then that's sort of a way of uh, having things growing in spaces that are also being used as aisles. So, you know, you would technically be needing to use that space as an aisle anyways. So, yeah, I think 
that there are some folks who have been implementing things like hedgerows around the perimeters of their fields. But I think that that is a, a management option that is relatively underutilized. Um, and, and, it's, and it is hard for, for people to, to justify the cost of, so. Mm-hmm. The cost of setting it up and also the lost space. Mm-hmm. 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 And and there are questions that some people have around certain buffers or uncropped areas functioning as like a harbor for other pests. Yeah, totally. Um, which I think is something that we, there's still more work to be done on understanding that. But um, I do know that there is some work being done related to that for pollinators in blueberries, for example, I was just at a conference where there was a researcher from Washington speaking to that and they were finding um, that uh, it was quite beneficial uh, to have those uh, border spaces or to have those unmanaged aisle spaces for pollinators to access. Um, and they, they weren't necessarily seeing negative impacts, but it's kind of on a case to case basis. Mm-hmm. Depends on like where you're located, what mm-hmm. kind of pest pressures do you experience? Um, what's and so growing, understanding, I guess, yeah, areas, what the beneficials like. Exactly. Yes. And what are the specific life cycles? Like all of those pieces of information are important. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so having so important to have that. <laughs> the farmer's input of the the knowledge of their site combined with someone who can give some expertise around buffers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. It. Yeah. Can you tell me about some of the management trials and tools that ES is working on that may be valuable for organic farmers? Mm-hmm, yeah. So there are a number of projects that ES does, um, some of which are specifically about organic management and some are, are sort of about pest pressure or tracking pests in different ways, which um, are it's sort of information that's beneficial for all growers, regardless of, of operation type. Um, but one in particular uh, that I can start off describing is um, we've been doing a project for the past three years um, related to mass trapping of spotted wing Drosophila, or SWD for short. And so SWD uh, is a fruit fly that is really challenging to manage and impacts a lot of soft fruits um, and ha- is sort of a newish uh, challenge to BC. And so there's a lot of work that's being done on how to improve management for SWD. The tool that we've been trialing is uh, mass trapping. And the idea of mass trapping is, as it sounds, you set out a really high density of traps um, to try to directly trap the pest in, in some fashion. And with the SWD mass trapping project, uh, we have been setting up these traps around the perimeters of blueberry fields to try to attract the SWD to those traps um, before they even necessarily end up entering the field from some of the, the field edges and the hedgerows. And 
yeah, I guess what I can say is they're still working on crunching the data from this last season. And we've been over the past couple of years sort of tweaking the the protocol. So the trap type and where they're placed exactly, et cetera. Um, but we haven't found uh, as high of an impact from the trapping as we were we were hoping to. We have been doing this on sort of like medium to larger scaled blueberry fields. So I would say like in the realm of around 10 acres or, or more per field. So there is work that has been done on, on smaller scale plots that has shown some impact of mass trapping um, for SWD in blueberries. Uh, that's sort of what we were basing our work on was uh, there's uh, one particular project in Florida where they found some some impacts and the traps were placed at about two meters apart from each other. So, and that's another part of, of any sort of mass trapping project is there's the logistics side of things. So uh, for mass traps to be effective, often they need to be placed at a really high density to attract a meaningful amount of the pest population to it. And yeah, at a large scale, that can be a lot of traps that you're having to set up and also check or manage on a regular basis. So on a smaller scale, that also might make it a bit more feasible financially <laughs> to be able to manage traps uh, around a small plot of blueberries mm -hmm. rather than a 10 plus acre field. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you think when there's a say you have half an acre or less of blueberries for instance as part of your diversified farm in general would there be less swd pressure there because in the lower mainland you know there's so many blueberries there's mm -hmm. hundreds of acres of blueberries and so does that intensify the pressure in a way is that one of the reasons why it's hard because maybe you're trapping some on your farm but if you know they're gorging on your neighbor's farm and then just <laughs> their numbers are multiplying it's just that there's too much is that is that somewhat of the issue mm, I would say yes that can be a, a part of the issue I would say um, even if you don't have blueberries around you um, SWD has a really wide range of hosts, in particular, uh, Himalayan blackberries. Oh, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so you might not have blueberries around you, but it's, there's a decent chance that you've got some alternate host, especially there's a, a high chance that you've got blueberry or blackberries rather around. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that makes it challenging. So even if you don't have another blueberry farm adjacent to you if you have any of the long list of other hosts around then um, you're kind of going to have that pressure and mm -hmm. a harbor of where they can be overwintering and coming into the field so um, yeah so I would say for like a smaller uh, plot of blueberries uh, what will work in your favor is that it's a smaller area for you to have to manage and some of these alternative methods of management that are not 
solely focused on sprays um, might actually serve you in ways that they are not functioning on larger operations as effectively. Um, I will say that the, the study that I'm referring to out of Florida, the efficacy that they found with mass trapping was, um, uh, was also found in combination with doing uh, like reduced spray. So they were doing field edge sprays instead of spraying the whole plot area. So that's another, I, I wanna mention that because often um, with IPM, there's not just one tool that's working for you, you're implementing a lot of tools. And that I guess goes back to what we're talking about, resiliency and using a diverse set of um, management approaches. That's true even in this case, like you might use mass trapping in addition to several other methods. Mm -hmm. I guess that's another thing with smaller scale uh, berry production is one of the biggest tools available to growers is to um, pick uh, early and often so that you don't have ripe fruit just sitting on the plants for long periods of time. That really increases your risk of having SWD infestations. And so um, it's, it's easier to have frequent picking on a smaller plot of berries. And that's a really important tool that growers can use as well. Hmm. Interesting. So yeah, that good management, picking often, maybe spraying the perimeter with Entrust or some sort of organic allowable spray, and then maybe including mass trapping. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, doing all of those things in combination um, might make it so that you're able to manage your pest pressure in ways that you don't have to go in and spray your entire block Multiple on times. a particular interval. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know that is a challenge with organic is that you're not allowed to use and trust more than a few times. Mm -hmm. so, yes, exactly. Yeah. And then I've mm -hmm. also heard, like you were mentioned, variety is so important. Choosing an earlier variety can really help with SWD is what I heard because it's the later they go on in the season, yes. the more the pressure. Increases. The more the pressure builds. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's really many factors. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, that's some work that we've been doing and it's, and it's wrapping up now. Um, the, another project that we've done, um, quickly, is an, oh yeah, go ahead. Quickly mm -hmm. question. So this mass trapping, I do a similar thing in my kitchen. I have like apple cider vinegar with then mm. a lid or whatever where the bugs can go in and they can't come out works in my kitchen does this work with other pests or other crops uh that's a yeah a really good question and i'm glad you brought that up so um swd yes they are a type of fruit fly um and they are really attracted to uh food baited traps so depending on the pest that you're dealing with, there's going to be different styles of traps that are more effective for them. With SWD, yeah, they're attracted to your little uh, cup full of apple cider vinegar or red wine or whatever it is that you set up in your kitchen. And the same thing functions out in the field. So in our mass trapping project, the, the traps that were set up were baited with a food bait and... Uh, yeah, we regularly bait our traps out in the fields that we use um, 
for other reasons, not for the mass trapping project, but just as regular trapping that we do with apple cider vinegar. Um, and there's different combinations of things. Sometimes people will use um, cooking wines in combination with sometimes there's a, there's a yeast bait that can be used. I personally would not recommend it <laughs> because it's very smelly and uh, it has to be activated so it can be get a little explodey as well. It's a very bad combination. <laughs> but point being that, yeah, they, they are attracted to these food baits. Um, and so uh, also uh, these traps are set up so that there is some form of liquid. So the the fruit flies are attracted to the food bait and then they are stuck in the trap and fall into liquid. So if you're, if you're baiting with apple cider vinegar, they will fall into the apple cider vinegar and kill. So it ends up being sort of like an attract and kill uh, method. It's a bit more passive. There's other forms of trapping where you trap the insect and then you have to take an extra step of killing them after the fact once they're in the trap. Um, but yeah, that's not the case here. Um, and other types of traps where you can buy specific food bait lures, which is uh, something that we trialed in this mass trapping project. Um, and it was very effective. It attracted a lot of SWD. In that case, we had to add water to the trap so that once the SWD were attracted to this little lure, they then fell in the water. Interesting. Mass trapping. So it works <laughs> It works across species, but particularly the fruit flies. There's a special lure you could buy, or they like apple cider vinegar. And if you were trying to get another species, you would use a different lure. Yes, that's right. Yeah, paying attention to specifically what you're trapping for and then trapping using the trap that's recommended for that pest uh, other pests are, are going to not be interested in apple cider vinegar at all, for example. Is, so, Is trap and kill commonly used in another crop with another pest? Hmm. Yes. So I won't, I wouldn't necessarily say commonly, but there are other ways of using trapping where you attract pests to a particular area and then instead of, for example, spraying your whole field, you end up spraying that area that they've been attracted to in really high levels. Yeah, there's been some really great work out of California um, where they've used alfalfa as a trap crop um, at certain intervals in their uh, strawberry plantings. So, um, and this is, yeah, can be an organic tool or a conventional tool, but to reduce the amount of sprays that are going directly onto the strawberry crop. So the alfalfa is really attractive to uh, ligus bugs, um, which is a, a challenging pest um, in strawberries. Their, their damage can be seen as causing sort of uh, malformed, sort of pucker-faced strawberries. Um, which I'm sure uh, many people have seen before. Um, so anyways, the ligus get attracted to these alfalfa uh, trap crop strips, and then the growers can come in and either spray the alfalfa rather than spraying the strawberries, or they come through with these uh, giant vacuum attachments on the backs of their tractors and suck up the ligus. 
So the thing about using a trap in any form, if it's a trap crop or actually like a, a physical trap that we're more familiar with, they they can't just be used passively. They have to be checked and managed in some way. Um, mm. So in this case, they're coming through and either spraying or sucking up the insects or for example, with the SWD, um, with the mass trapping that we were doing, we would have to come out and refresh that food bait um, on a regular basis and also clean out the traps because there would at certain points be um, hundreds of, of SWD in a single trap. So um, to maintain efficacy of those traps, they, they, there's work that has to go into that. So. Mm-hmm. Which can be tough in a busy growing season. Absolutely. And is part of like the actual practical side of uh, a lot of evaluation of of mass trapping, even if they were found to be effective um, against the pest, is it actually cost effective is another question Mm -hmm. that has Mm -hmm. to be asked in those trials. Yeah. Yeah, Does it work in that system? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Cool. And so that was one. We talked about mass trapping. <laughs> it took you a little yeah. bit off trend, uh, off, um, on a tangent. But mm-hmm. what else is going on at ES in terms of trials? Yeah, absolutely. So um, another project we've been doing, uh, it's another multi-year project. Uh, we've been doing more trapping, uh, this time a different type of trapping and for a different pest. So um, we've been setting up yellow sticky traps uh, around Delta for seed corn maggot, which is a fly. Um, Not a fruit fly, but more like a little black gray fly um, that looks a bit more like the house flies that you'd see around your home. Um, And the seed corn maggot has corn in the name. So yes, corn is one of the, the targets um, of the, the larva, the maggot form in the soil. Um, it will go and, and feed on newly planted seeds. It also affects actually quite a range of different crops, um, including uh, the legume family. And so uh what we've been working on specifically is peas and beans, uh, organic peas and beans production in Delta, uh, because yeah, growers have been experiencing some really high stand loss, which for um, a while was believed to just solely be caused by um, by seed rot, but we came to realize that not all of it was just rot um some of it was actually damaged by these maggots so um what we're doing with these traps in this case the um the flies are attracted to the yellow color so in this case it's not about attraction to food but there's a color preference um, on these sticky traps the traps are also a little bit more passive um so the the flies have to sort of be flying by relatively close to come into contact with these traps as opposed to seeking out a scent like the SWD might do in the other example we discussed. Um, But these trap numbers um, we're basically using to ground truth a model um, that has been developed elsewhere. Um, And that model 
is a growing degree day model. So it's kind of based on accumulated uh, temperature. But in order to use the model, you have to have information about the population dynamics in that area. So we're tracking sort of the peak of uh, adult activity over time. And that allows us to input information into this growing degree day model and predict when there might be some periods of time where there's a slump in the seed corn maggot population, particularly pressure of the adults laying eggs um, into the soil. And then growers have this tool of trying to plant at this targeted time where there's reduced pressure. Uh, because, uh, yeah, there's not really much that they can do, especially organically. There's no seed treatments or anything like that. The, the seeds are sort of at the mercy of the, of the maggots, <laughs> unfortunately. So this, this timing tool uh, is, is important and is one of the few options that are available. So in this case, the trapping isn't to kill, it's to time, get a sense of the population, and then use that, you know, inform your planting timing. You're like, okay, we're going to plant now because it looks like the numbers are lower this week. Yes, exactly. So it's a really different version of, of using trapping as a tool. Uh, traps, yeah, can perform all sorts of different functions for informing your, your pest management. It's so interesting to me that a lot of the producers were thinking it was seed rot for a long time and then realized it was this pest. How did they end up learning that it was the pest and not just seed rot? Mm -hmm. So um, the maggots, after they've fed, but then once they pupate and become flies and fly away, what you're left with, the damage, looks really similar to rot. Um, and kind of also starts to rot after a period of time anyways. And so the, the main way that we were able to identify the presence of the maggots was by uh, digging up the seeds at the right time to catch the maggots while they were still in the seed. And the way that that happened was basically once seeds were planted and they weren't emerging at the time that they were expected to, or there were a lot of sort of poor emergence sections in a field, going out quickly to dig up those seeds and looking at them. Uh, if you wait too long, those maggots will be long gone and flying around as flies, and it will be much harder to differentiate between seed rot and seed maggot damage. Mm -hmm. So check in, check in early and often. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you notice that that field is not emerging the way that you expect it to, dig up some seeds and check. And maybe it is seed rot. Maybe it's just the soil is cold and, and you can tell that that seed is still healthy. And then you're like, okay, good to know. But um, checking, checking is an important step there. Cool. Um, and what else? What else is ES working on? Mm -hmm. So... Um, there's another project that we've been doing, another multi-year project, um, with uh, this device called a Smart Beat. Um, and the, the Smart Beat is like a fake beat. <laughs> um, it's got like 
I think it's silicone uh, structure that's shaped like a beet. And then the inside of it, it has uh, a device that measures impact. Uh, and so you can take this smart beat and we've been running it through people's harvesting processes, uh, through their wash lines and into their storage bins. And it gives us readings on impact. So we're able to identify areas of really high mechanical or physical damage risk. And the reason that that is important is because uh, not just because of the physical damage on its own, but those wounds or bruised areas become these weak points where storage diseases are very easily able to um, enter the beets. So, yeah, growers were having a challenge with uh, diseases in storage, and um, that's why this analysis of, of damage points was being done. And it was really interesting to see this little beat go along a wash line and track um, these peaks in in impact after the fact and sort of be able to zero in on the point along the wash line where they occurred. And uh, in some cases, in real time, growers were able to add some uh, like cushion points or reduce the angle of drop um, to have uh, a pretty immediate effect on on the peak impact in that area. So that that has been a, a really interesting project to to see play out. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'd love to see this smart beat. <laughs> did, did the producers who were able to make changes to their washing line or harvesting methods, have they noticed a reduction in storage rot or storage diseases? Mm -hmm. So um, we were able to see it in the project to an extent. Um, I don't know how... Uh, the growers saw it overall in their their overall storage because we were just looking at these small uh, sort of trial runs and then tracking the beats that went through that small trial run. So, um, but I I do know that growers were able to uh, visually see a reduction in physical damage. Um, how that tracked out to to disease uh, is sort of uh, still unclear at this point. Where did you get the smart beat? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> it came from it's it's from somewhere in Europe. Megan Gray, who was running this project the past couple years, would certainly know. Um, yeah, I am not sure where it came from. I could find that out though. Well, I'm just curious, like if if anyone would be interested in this. But it it sounds like, well, a smart beat is helpful, even just that awareness of maybe looking if you're if you're having um disease in of your storage crops, just kind of checking out the their treatment and just maybe observing and if you don't have access to a to a smart beet or a smart potato, um just just paying attention to the impact they might be experiencing and trying to reduce it where possible might have a positive impact. Yeah. I think that the, one of the big like best management practices to take away from this is that it is really important to pay attention to physical damage um, because that is going to then play into 
your disease pressure that you might experience during storage. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, one thing, one uh, observation that came out of this project uh, was also how, how important it is to manage damage if you are going to mow the tops of your beets before they go into storage. That is where we saw the most, um, some of the most mechanical or physical damage on beets before they went into storage um, was not as a result of banging around um, in the wash line, etc. But being mowed and depending on how the mower was set or how fast it was going, um, getting some damage and lacerations at the tops of the beets. So for some growers, they maybe don't mow. That's not a part of their process. They're, they're pulling or they're trying to keep the beet tops, for example. Mm-hmm. But that was, that was um, something interesting that came out of this as well. Mm-hmm. I never had heard of smart beats before. It's so interesting. Nothing <laughs> <laughs> existed. Yeah, they're 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 pretty fun and pretty funny. Um, the the one thing, uh, one hot tip for anyone if they're ever using a smart beat or we've used a smart spud in the past, is you really got to keep your sights on it while it's running through whatever process you're doing because it doesn't have a location tracker on it. So some some people at ES have spent some stressful moments um, digging through big potato bins because they didn't see the potato, the smart spud as it came out of the harvester. And it's just amidst hundreds of potatoes. We, we found it every single time, but uh, yeah, yeah, you can't slack on the tracking of the smart feed or yeah. smart spud. It needs GPS or something. It needs to exactly. be even smarter. Exactly. Yeah, an even smarter beat is uh, the next prototype that I'm looking for. (laughs) All right, so that's part one between Emma and Drew. And you should be able to find part two in the same podcast feed. So look for that. And there's not much more to say. So we'll finish things off with my four-year-old son, Levon, reciting clauses from the Canadian Organic Standards General Principles and Management document. 5.6.3 If application equipment such as a sprayer is used to apply prohibited substances, it shall be thoroughly cleaned prior to use in an organic crop.